Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off podcast. Today, we're talking about how a decade of financial crises have changed the world. The Europeans and uh, the rest of the world are in this confused state where they want to understand this as a global problem. And on the other hand, the impulse to blame the United States is massive. So it's that kind of a global problem. It's the one that affects everyone else, but is ultimately attributable to the U.S. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Yes, this is the program where we provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and your life. And today it's our second episode commemorating the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis. Let me pull you back 10 years, because if it were 10 years ago today... We would have already seen the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy filing. We would have seen Bank of America's intention to buy Merrill Lynch. We would have seen that the Federal Reserve Board would have uh, authorized the lending of up to $85 billion to American International Group, AIG. Uh, We would have seen... The value, the net asset value of shares in the reserve primary money market fund falling below a buck, breaking the buck. That was huge. Today, when we're dropping this episode, which is September 20th, 10 years ago today, that was when the Treasury Department submitted draft legislation to Congress for authority to purchase troubled assets, the first version of TARP. Well, today here on our program, we have a guy who just literally scorched the earth in researching how the financial crisis, which you think started in the United States, but maybe was sparked elsewhere, like in Europe. He really walks through every aspect of the buildup to the crisis, the crisis itself and its aftermath and its aftershocks in his gazillion page book, Crashed. How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. The author, Adam Tooze, is a professor of history at Columbia. He also has an amazingly delightful accent. I hope that you will love this interview as much as I loved actually conducting it. We left a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. It is just remarkable. So here is our interview with Adam Tooze. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Adam Tews, welcome to the program. Now, here you probably are never going to confront this question ever again. We start the interview with one question. What is the best financial decision you have made in your life? <laughs> I'm really the wrong, the wrong person. Or the to, right one. The, probably spending money on my daughter's education. Well, why? Have you gotten some return on it? Not yet. Oh, but, well, so you're uh, hopeful. I'm hopeful. All right. Yeah. Uh, Adam, you are a historian and you have written this book called Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. As you were researching this, what surprised you that maybe you had thought living through the crisis yourself as maybe just an observer? Mm -hmm. What was surprising to you about the nuance of what was going on at that time? Well, I I think, I mean, as a European, of course, the, the question is, why did it turn out so much worse in the Eurozone? Because right. it, it obviously, huge damage was inflicted on American society. Above all, the minority populations, both black and Latino, suffer huge hits to their wealth. The median net worth of African-American households collapses to 
trivial levels, teens, less than teens, mm-hmm. so virtually no wealth. So this is a huge shock to American society, and in no way should that be underestimated. But as a European, as a passionate uh, uh, product of, of the European Union, if such a thing exists, um, the, the debacle in the Eurozone is the thing which, of course, affects me most. And, and digging into that and trying to understand the derailment of European policy, the opportunities that might have been there, trying to really appreciate and understand what motivated people whose policy choices are just almost incomprehensible to me. That was the biggest challenge of writing the book and remains, I think, the biggest challenge. And I mean, you have to remember leading into the crisis that there was this um, sense that the European Union and the common currency, those countries, were going to be leaders in yes. this in this period of time. And that we had, you know, Giselle saying, I want to be paid in euros. And we have stores in the Hamptons saying, yeah. we accept euros. And yeah. it was going to be, you know, everything euro. And at that very moment, uh, all of those those smaller Eastern European bloc countries are now maybe being even invited into the common currency, yes, right? Yeah. And the crap is hitting the fan mm. in the U.S. Mm. The stock market is getting killed. Mm. We have investment banks going broke. We have others becoming financial holding companies mm. and now set the stage for what is happening at the U.N. General Assembly. Well, it's a remarkable meeting um, because... Um, uh, President Bush, in the in the final stages of his presidency, arrives uh, to give a speech, and it's you know it's a medium length speech. But for the first maybe two thirds of the speech, what he's talking about is the problem of the war on terror and the color revolutions in Eastern Europe, and it really is that neoconservative mantra of the early two thousands being regurgitated. I think one has to say at a moment when the the wheels are coming off the bus, and not just in the United States, but globally. And when he does come to talk about the financial crisis, uh, astonishingly, he, as it were, describes it as an American problem. And we see this problem, we're going to fix it. And that's it. And then over and out, and we move on. And speaker after speaker in the wake of this comes to the podium to say, well, in fact, it's a global problem. And we, we think it's going to change the world completely. And to my mind, one of the central riddles about writing the history of this moment is what to make of that. Um, and, and the diagnosis of the book is in a sense that almost everyone is wrong. No one at that moment really understands it. It's, uh, it's clearly not just an American problem. And the Bush presidency really is in its dying days and is being abandoned by its own party on the one hand. And on the other hand, the Europeans and uh, the rest of the world are in this confused state where they want to understand this as a global problem. And on the other hand, the impulse to blame the United States is massive. So it's that kind of a global problem. It's the one that affects everyone else, but is ultimately attributed to the US. But the canary in the coal mine of the whole crisis did occur in 2007 yes. in the UK. Well, two. I mean, first in August, Paribas shut right. in three of its funds. Right. And those were admittedly heavily involved in American subprime. But it was a French bank that, that is, the, is the first bank to say there is no liquidity. In other words, there is no price at, we, at which we can sell this stuff. And there's nothing scarier than that for a market. You know, if there's a price, it's fine. But if there is no yeah. price, if you're gapping such that there's really no demand at all, then you just have to shut down because you have to wait for markets to recover. And then exactly a month later, it's a British bank which doesn't have any exposure to subprime. That was the one that seemed scarier to me. I remember in the moment because, again, when you're living in it, you don't see all the ripple effects. You could put it in a box and say, and eh, they screwed up, you know, yeah. eh, that was or, you know, that guy who owned 10 homes and was a ridiculous house flipper and got stuck. He should go broke. 
But then when it is the next order effects and it's now impacting a bank that didn't seem to have an exposure there or it's affecting the person who didn't flip a house, who just bought a house for the wrong price and got the wrong kind of mortgage and the whole thing's blowing up and loses its job. So I'm wondering what was going on in Europe when those two failures occur? Are they reaching out to the U.S. and saying, Holy smokes, this is bad. Or are they trying to say, "Yeah, we got it set. We got it taken care of." It's a it's a very confused picture at that moment um, because the real shock here um, is that something bad has happened on the asset side of these banks' balance sheets. That's evident. But that happens all the time. It happens periodically. People get overexcited about some asset class. They go up and then they bust. Right. Right. But what Northern Rock made clear is that it was going to be the liability side, the funding side of the bank balance sheets that was really going to be the killer problem. So this was not going to be dot-com, where you had huge losses to people's assets, um, but you had no financial crisis because it was real money. It was in pension funds. It was stashed away with asset managers. They absorbed the hit. Uh, you roll with it for a couple of years. You adjust your spending and investment. Maybe you sue somebody, but it doesn't cause a systemic heart attack. What Northern Rock made clear is that the announcement by Paribas had essentially shut down the interbank funding market. Mm-hmm. And Northern Rock was was on death row because it was massively funded through wholesale funding sources from all over the world. So it didn't need to have any subprime exposure. It just needed to be in markets with people who did have subprime exposure right. to be dead. And, and then not to have the ability to get the liquidity it exactly. needed. And the and at that moment, the ECB does respond to the Paribas announcement generously on an enormous scale. It opens the floodgates and the scale of the liquidity that the ECB provides is really the moment at which Bernanke and co go from from sort of fair complacency earlier in 2007 mm-hmm. to realizing that things are going to get very bad. Right. And from then on in, it's a race against time, really, as to how bad the losses are going to be on any given bank's balance sheet and how much liquidity can be pumped into the global system. And it has to be on both sides because what the Fed starts noticing is that early in the morning before the American markets have opened up, there are big spikes in funding costs on the other side of the Atlantic for dollar funding. Mm-hmm. And these are very destabilizing because the American market opens and no one knows what's going on and there's been these crazy interest rate spikes on the European side. Uh, And the Fed begins to realize that the dollar problem, the dollar funding problem is not going to be just a problem for America's banks. It's actually going to be a huge transatlantic problem. Was this the first full scale interconnected crisis? Or would you even think that maybe the late 1990s when there's an emerging market crisis is like kind of the whisper of it. Yeah. I mean, it's scary, but it's not going to yeah. take the whole system down, right? No, I, absolutely. One can see building. After all, you know, the 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 casualties or the near casualties, the weak links of the 2000s are the same in the 1980s. I mean, Citigroup, Citibank is like, you know, whenever there's trouble, it's there and it's hugely exposed. Mm. Um, so those, those crises are definitely... Uh, uh, early warning signs of how difficult this is going to be. And if you talk to somebody like Tim Geithner, who was in the front line of the Mexico crisis, Larry Summers, likewise, that entire generation of policymakers is shaped by those firefighting experiences. But it's one thing to be dealing with that in Mexico or South Korea. It's quite another thing to be dealing with that in Wall Street and the city of London, where the balance sheet sizes run into the trillions just for one individual bank, and they're all interconnected with each other, and they're all coming down simultaneously. And the Federal Reserve once you know, Bernanke moves off of this is contained, yeah. which was an unfortunate thing that he had to say. Then he goes into savior mode. And I, I do love the way that you describe that the language around this is so informative that, yeah. you know, essentially it's like we're here to save the world and we're, you know, the firefighters, the break the glass scenario. Yeah. And it seems so wrong, wrong footed 
when you were part of the problem building up to it. So explain how they came to the rescue for real and then also how they recount it in the aftermath. Yeah, I mean, uh, it is very striking, again, quite by contrast with the Europeans, the, the willingness of the American actors to reach for the language really of 9-11, the language of Vietnam, the language of of, uh, of military power, which in America, of course, is seen as a force for good. The Navy advertises itself as a, there isn't a European Navy that advertises itself in quite the same way. So that rhetoric, which I think is rather important, though, because it licenses you to do extraordinary things and under extraordinary conditions mm. and to describe that as a powerful and essential public service. Service and also to kind of steel yourself to do what are scary things. I mean, it must have been terrifying. It isn't the agony that a household goes through when they're losing their house or uh, is forced to move, you know. But it is nevertheless, it was clearly was a truly traumatic experience for them. And it comes in three phases, right? So first of all, there's the problem of how you recapitalize banks, which are basically insolvent, how you get those deals kind of done. So the early one is you know, Bear Stearns, where you basically find a white knight to come in or whatever we're going to call J.P. Morgan at that moment. I'm sure they'd be happy to be called a white knight. I'm sure they would. Jamie Dimon, the white knight. Exactly. So there's a strategic action in which you're trying to basically recapitalize the banks. That's one element. That's a well-known story. And it's highly controversial because it does involve risk on the part of public actors. You have to actually take shares. uh, And that's a an obviously political issue. Then, of course, there's the famous QE programs, which are asset buying, stabilizing large classes of assets by simply establishing the Fed as the buyer of last resort for whatever asset class it is. Yeah, no about. matter how much crap is in there, we'll buy it. We'll, we'll buy it. Well, what we'll do is we'll draw, we'll soak up other markets so as to create demand for whatever crap you've got. And in some <laughs> cases, they will take they will take the absolute rubbish. But the really key element, which is underestimated and is where you really see the transnational action of the Fed is, in fact, the classic thing which a central bank should always do in a crisis, all the way back to the 1850s. And that's liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. Whatever they need, you charge them some kind of price for it. You're supposed to lend at quite stiff terms. This is the classic badge hop prescription of the 1850s, but abundant liquidity. Just because if you lose liquidity, the system We're in a bank run scenario. It doesn't matter how solvent the bank is, how good the banker is as a person. You're in the Jimmy Stewart scenario. There's nothing he can do, right, to Mm -hmm. save the bank against this onrush of panicked depositors. And of course, in a modern banking system, we're not dealing with depositors, right? That is a kind of, you know, that's a fanciful thing you see in textbooks. But these banks are all wholesale funded on money markets. So they're dealing with each other mm-hmm. and they all move lightning, you know, with lightning speed. They're under fiduciary obligations to protect themselves. So they just yank funding. Lehman went from being able to fund $180 billion overnight in the repo market to not being able to fund any within a 24-hour period. And then we had other corporations that got it's, involved it's, in like just do, these normal operations. So in circumstances like this, the Fed just has to provide liquidity. And it's important to say this isn't a bailout. It's against collateral. They charge interest. Um, but it is credit that none of these private entities could get any other way. So it's a, right. it's a subsidy in the sense that without them, uh, you'd be dead. Right. And the Fed does this on an epic scale. Uh, and it does it completely indifferently as to whether or not you're a European or an American bank. And remember that when we had this whole conversation in the moment around, say, AIG, yeah was essentially about an international liquidity crisis yeah. that it was impossible to imagine yeah. that we could let AIG fail. Yeah. And and I know that people in the United States were like, why are we doing this? This is not a U.S. company even. It's not a U.S. bank. Why? Can you explain what 
could have happened with AIG's failure? Well, AIG made, I mean, AIG is an American company. It made most of its losses through its London branch. Mm -hmm. It was doing the business in London because it was less uh, intensively regulated. A lot of American banks would offshore the higher risk activities to London because it was a very light touch regulatory regime. It was the setting the standard for the lowest possible bar. Um, The reason why America had to act, I think, is not out of some sort of, you know, excessive sense of global responsibility, some sort of Davos G20, you know, delusion of grandeur. It's because European banks are systemically important for the United States. Uh, By 2007, um, about 29 to 30 percent of private label securitization, so that's mainly the subprime stuff, was ending up in Europe. Now, you think, well, good riddance, great. The problem is, of course, that if they run short of dollar funding, they just dump that stuff in a fire sale in the United States. And that negates any effort or would have negated any effort by the American authorities to stabilize those markets. It would have forced American banks to recognize losses and would have risked a a true escalation of the crisis. So what uh, the Fed does is basically treat European banks as though they were American banks. And then when they run out of good collateral, which really is beginning to happen by the end of September, the Fed says, and this really the New York Fed with Geithner leading the way here, we've got to come up with some other mechanism for getting dollars to these European banks, because otherwise there's this fire sale risk. And the mechanism they devise is to basically revive uh, uh, an instrument that was last used in the Bretton Woods period intensively, which are these swap lines, where what you basically do is you trade euros for dollars at an agreed exchange rate and agreed interest rate margin on the favor of the United States, um, and agree to swap back after 28 days, two weeks, whatever the but period that- is. That holds them over. Holds them over. means they never run out of dollars. You never, ever get to the moment when a depositor slash any bank discovers it doesn't have the dollars it needs to do business. And in a bank run, that's the crucial thing. The ATMs, in a metaphorical sense, have got to stay open. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Adam Tews in just a minute. I think that it is time that we all recognized that the financial crisis, it actually wasn't one thing. It was lots of things. And it definitely opened all of our eyes to the connectivity of the world. And if you want to learn something from that financial crisis, maybe you better understand that you are not the average investor. So why do you settle for the same old average investing? Now there's a smarter way to manage your money. Betterment. Betterment is an online financial advisor for people who refuse to settle for average. Of course, all investing involves risk, but better off listeners, listen up. You can get up to one year managed free just by visiting betterment.com slash better off. That's betterment.com slash better off. Don't settle for average investing. Demand better. Betterment. Outsmart average. Okay, now back to our interview with Adam Tooze. Was the failure of Lehman Brothers the thing that made them switch over to at any cost? Because it seemed to me that right up until that point, they weren't they weren't going to go there. Yeah, and they obviously could have done something. Obviously, at any they did a lot of things that were unconventional, and they and they, yeah. they seemed to cling to this. Well, we couldn't have saved Lehman Brothers, which seems like malarkey. No, they are. I mean, they are bought in on that line. They've been to court and defended that line. They're never going to budge from that line. Almost all the forensic examination now suggests that, in fact, there's there was a determined pushback by the Treasury and the Fed, Bernanke and Paulson, 
uh, to resist a, gener a generous deal for Lehman. Generous in the sense of just providing the capital that would have enabled it to get through a couple more weeks and then negotiate some kind of sale the way they'd done for Bear Stearns. I think Will has to really treat this um, as a deeply political problem. And I mean that in the fundamental sense of what is your view of how government should act in relation to a problem like this? What kind of a world are we in? What are the sorts of things we're going to have to do now? But also narrowly in a party political problem, because this is a Republican administration on its last legs, um, facing a Democratic Congress with a general election coming up in November. And um, the punishment uh, that the Bush administration is taking um, from the summer is grueling. Uh, and this is really the moment where you see the fragmentation of the GOP as a coherent, stabilizing force in the governance of American or global capitalism, because the GOP fails to deliver the votes for the nationalization of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Mm -hmm. Now, th those are those are the underpinnings of the entire American mortgage system. This is not subprime. This is the, as hard as the right tried to argue that it was. These are the best. These are the most conforming, most standard American loans. This is the pillar of middle, I mean, genuinely middle class America. Yeah, this is homeownership this, dream yeah, come to is, life. It depends on Fannie Mae and Freddie yep. Mac. It's weird. Compared by for a European, it's very weird. I had no idea till I moved here that you know my loan would be guaranteed by means of this weird mechanism, and it had to be constrained in these ways and conformed to some New Deal vision. I mean, it's 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 very odd, fine, but nevertheless, de facto, summer of two thousand and eight, that entire funding structure is in doubt, and that is also where the Chinese were most dodgy. That is the moment where the the Chinese could really perhaps have gotten off the boat, um, because they had a very large investment in GSE, you know, um, government right. sponsored enterprise debt. Right, they had made all the money shipping stuff abroad they had dollars they want to go and buy they had US, parked some right? of it in treasuries bona fide treasuries and a lot of it in GSEs which was supposed to be treasury like and all of a sudden it appears that the GSEs aren't treasury like at all mm. and Paulson is a China hand I mean this is why he was there he was there to manage the Sino-American relationship because run up to the in the run-up to the crisis that's what everyone thought the strategic problem was and he does do the job he pushes uh, GSE conservatorship through but only with the Democratic Party's votes hmm. And coming off that, they're burning. I mean, the Republican administration, the Bush administration is hurting politically. And the very last thing they want to be seen to be doing at that moment is some other gigantic bailout. And we're not talking liquidity here. I think behind the scenes, not some central bank operation on a genuinely confidential basis, as all the liquidity operations are until they're exposed by a lawsuit in 2011. Um, this would have been a full on bailout the Fed and the Treasury would have had to have gone in in the way they did with Bear Stearns. They would have had to take some of the bad assets off Lehman's ba balance sheet. They would have had to put mm -hmm. taxpayer at risk. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a completely different political proposition. And all the evidence is that Paulson and Bernanke are pushing back against this. There's hmm. a lot of loose talk on the day of Lehman's bankruptcy that this is a good day to be in the Treasury. Yeah. You know, we've finally demonstrated that we do know from discipline. Right. You know, that this isn't a cash register that anyone could just show up. And then the proverbial hits the fan and people, are, you know, begin to actually understand the systemic ramifications of this. And, it, and of course, it's devastating. It is important, I think, to say that if it hadn't been Lehman, it would have been somebody else. Right, because we knew that it w that was the problem, that even when Jamie Dimon said, I didn't yeah. need the money, I had to... Uh, I, but you, you would have needed the money if it were Lehman, 
and then Morgan Stanley. Well, Merrill Lynch was going to go, right? right? It, it, was Lehman, a tra- it was a right? race to the bottom between right? those Lehman, two. Lehman, yeah. Merrill, Morgan, Goldman. Goldman, Goldman was right? in the frame. We forget this. Yeah, like, they were supposed to be the titans. They were really shaky because they're an investment bank. Of course. They and, have no deposits. And everybody was going to go down with the ship. And so that was when I did sort of say, like, gosh, this is sort of brilliant. They're going to have to get everyone to the table yep. and everyone's taking the money. What is happening in that moment in Europe? Well, this, as, yeah. as that is going on in the U.S. This is the big difference. There is a moment in the U.S. on the 13th of October when Paulson, Bernanke, Geithner bang the table and all of the major bank CEOs that are there and they force them to take money. Now, it's it's not a Cosa Nostra-style deal. And they literally say this. You know, They literally say we were not going to do a Cosa Nostra-style deal. This was, a, this was an offer that you would have been foolish not to accept. Of course. Everyone in the room except possibly JP Morgan. But JP Morgan understand that if Citigroup goes down, which is the real worry, if Citigroup goes, forget Lehman. Like Citigroup has a you know massive balance sheet, huge global interconnectedness, and is really shaky all the way through the end of November. Mm-hmm. So that's what's really going on here, right? And there is a moment of concerted action. So the very least one can say is America's business class and political elite got its stuff together at that moment and produced a coherent response. Mm-hmm. And the contrast with Europe is astonishing because Be- that is not what happens in right, Europe. Right, because it's all, first of all, it's, like it's fractured. So we talk yeah. about Europe like it's the same as the United yeah. States, and it's so different. It's fractured, and, and each country yeah. has a different System. lens through which they're Absolutely. viewing this, right? So talk about so that So you can bit. kind of nicely contrast three, I think, uh, the UK, France, and Germany. Um, the UK was supposed to be the model citizen uh, because early in October, they propose a plan for recapitalization. But the thing is, it's not mandatory. But what it is, is a harnessing together of recapitalization and guarantees. In other words, it's a very attractive offer to have a guarantee for the Treasury for your liabilities if you accept the capital. The th- problem in the UK is that the most competitive banks decide that they're just simply going to opt out. So mm. it's as though on the 13th of October, the strongest American banks, Wells Fargo and JP Morgan, had walked out of the room. Right, we're done. And and Brown doesn't have the leverage to force Barclays and HSBC to take the money. So you have a kind of ad hoc solution for two of the absolutely weakest banks. Mm. In Germany, the same thing plays out, but without even the ambition to recapitalize everyone. And Deutsche Bank just says from the very beginning, we're not having any part of this. I would consider this contemptible to take this money. The factor where they're taking the money from, Barclays as well, is uh, oil money. Uh, sovereign, mm. sovereign wealth funds from the Gulf uh, is where they're getting the crucial elements of capital. Mm. So they take money from governments, but not their own. Or maybe even just really bad actors in, in yeah. decent governments. And then the, the French are the really telling example. And this is where it's kind of like a little painful for, because America's, for America's are more proper. Because France has the closest analogy to the American system. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the French elite is so incredibly close-knit that it's almost as close-knit as the Treasury Wall Street connection huh. that's been established in the US since the 1990s. In other words, they all know each other. They all went to the same schools. Yeah. They circulate between the Treasury, the Par- uh, above all, Paribas Bank. They have one lead elephant, which if Paribas says, we're going to do this in conjunction with the Treasury. And in fact, they even have a kind of public-private partnership with a lot of the money being raised by the banks themselves. It's going to happen. And the striking thing is that, as it were, the country in Europe with the most concerted deal is the one with the most closed social elite, the one with the most closed, the most tight-knit political elite, and that's the one that most closely resembles the United States at this moment. And in that, you have a foreshadowing of the kind of the problem of oligarchy, the problem of elite, the problem of the 1%. Okay, and so let's go from the first crisis, which is sort of 
a little tiny, like a sprinkling of BNP Paribas, UK, yeah. US, huge. Yeah. Now, fast forward and let's talk about what's going on with Greece and how the sovereign crisis yeah. is sort of the the second order impact yeah. of the crisis. Yeah, the way that runs through is by way of the real economy. So Greece doesn't have big global banks. It has no exposure to subprime. Uh, it doesn't need to. It's an export dependent economy, believe it or not, heavily dependent, especially on tourist revenues. And those slump. The Greek government does what was broadly speaking consensus at the time. Uh, it's a particularly irresponsible government, it has to be said, uh, which is open the fiscal taps because if the private sector is collapsing, then the, the sensible stabilizing thing to do is to offset through public expenditure. And it would have been sensible if it hadn't been for the pre-existing debt level in Greece. And the pre-existing debt level in Greece is dangerously high in excess of 110 plus percent of debt to GDP. So if you're running, you know, 10% of GDP, 12% of GDP deficits, you rapidly crash through the, the point of no return and you rapidly move from being borderline just about coping to being in a totally unsustainable position and requiring debt restructuring. And if they were not part of the common currency, yeah. they could have just devalued the drachma. They probably would have gone to the IMF and yeah. gotten some money and it would have been terrible. Not saying it wouldn't be terrible, but it would have been a, a more contained crisis, right? Well, it cuts both ways. Um, yes, uh, it would have been immediate pain. They would have been, I think the closest analogy is probably Hungary, which mm -hmm. is really up there right at the front of the IMS list. And mm -hmm. it's a deflationary scenario, huge in spike in the cost of imported materials uh, and goods. Um, but uh, on the other hand, the euro gives you protection in the first instance. Right. Uh, and so Greece gets through 2009 uh, reasonably well. And the German finance minister at the time, Per Steinbrück, you have to remember, first Merkel coalition is socialists, social democrats and CDU together. He's the finance minister, strong man. Uh, and uh, he says, you know what, it's not really in the rule book, but we're going to have to pull together. We can't allow somebody to fall off the bus in the eurozone. It would be too damaging. So there are positive noises coming mm -hmm. out of the out of the eurozone, uh, which allow Greece to limp through. Uh, it's important to, to recognize, uh, and you know, this is one of the real myths of the eurozone crisis, that that Greek debt had been there all along. So no one looks at this and goes, okay, we have to punish the Greeks immediately for their misbehavior in the, in the noughties, in the, in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. The Greeks weren't misbehaving, at least on the macroeconomic kind of uh, radar. They didn't show up as misbehaving because they weren't running gigantic deficits then. That 100 to 110% of GDP debt, they piled up in the 80s, 80s and 90s. So they go into the Eurozone in with a fragile that. state with that. Everyone knows they came in with that. Right. So the immediate impulse is not to say, right, punish them straight away. They're feckless. They're bringing the system into disrepute. Everyone knew there was that hazard. No one had anticipated the kind of macroeconomic shock uh, that Europe and the world experienced in 08-09. No one. I mean, this is the worst moment, say, mm. for Germany. This is the largest fall in German GDP since the creation of the Federal Republic, so since mm. the Great Depression in the 30s. This is a huge shock. And so the initial response is not, okay, let's just punish them. Um, the initial response is, you know, we're going to have to contain this. Right, and we're going to settle like this working. down. We're yeah. going to settle this down. Yeah. And then... We have another year before it seems to escalate yeah. again. And that's really when it starts to feel like there is a bit more of the austerity oh, and yeah. you're going to have to suck it up. And yeah. you were terrible and you didn't yeah. tell us about this, which they did. But we looked the other way because we wanted them yeah. in the right. And so what is the crisis point that forces it's really the Germans and the French to come back and say, Uncle, we give. This is way bigger, and we actually do have to do something bigger. 
Well, it takes a long time to get there, and that is not the initial response. Right. right. And and uh, writing the history of the eurozone crisis, it's grinding. Uh, but I actually think if you want to convey the flavour of this, you have to conflay, co- convey its attritional quality. Otherwise, you're missing the point. Right. Mm-hmm. Modern democratic politics. One of the reasons it's kind of unpopular is it's tedious, and you actually have to summon up both as an analyst as an a reader the kind of courage and and stamina to get through this because otherwise you don't understand the crisis and it goes phase after phase and after phase. A crucial thing that happens in 2009, which is really, I think, often underestimated is a big shift in Germany itself. Takes two elements. Uh, One is that the old coalition delivers a really seriously meant constitutional amendment, because you know, people can change constitutions. This one's for real, that commits Germany to running zero deficits at all levels of government federal government, state-level government, and local government. So they make this shift yeah. within Germany. Yeah. They're obviously then going to have that as a sort of the the mantra going yeah. into the European crisis or the yeah. Greek crisis. So how long does that go on? Two years? Is that three years? Well, that's 10, the line 11? they've stuck to. So, the, the you know, the Germans, you know, God love them, are consistent in one fundamental respect, which is they've said all along, we need some radical solutions here. And they are the people who most consistently have pushed radical solutions Mm -hmm. um, up to and including you know, a timeout from the Eurozone. This is the German finance minister. Right. Um, Also, from the very beginning, they're the people who say, well, you know what, maybe we've got to restructure this. Um, And from the very beginning, their political system is most assertively saying, you know what, and the banks should pay too. There should be private sector involvement. Right. The problem, of course, is, and that sounds like a rational package, and that's kind of where we've ended up. Right. right? Um, But the problem is that what they don't then think is the safety net necessary to make that something other than a suicide pact? Because mm. if you do that, any of those things, um, without bolstering the position of the other marginal members of the Eurozone, it's a recipe for total disaster. Right. It's just and, one after another. Yes, exactly. And so that's really the dilemma, is that the Europeans, each of them have, if you like, piece, pieces of this puzzle. It's extraordinarily difficult to get to that October 13th moment mm. that we had in the US right. in the Treasury, where you put, as it were, all of the key elements of the puzzle on the table at the same time. It's a more difficult puzzle in the in the Europe as well, of course, because it involves sovereign debt as well as banks. So the October 13th analogy in Europe is when? It, it's bit by bit. It's agonizing. It takes it takes uh, years. By the summer of 2012, That's we finally I... get there. We avoid Greece melting away into the Mediterranean. We avoid Deutsche Bank going broke. We get through this. And before we let you go, it's 10 years mm. and you are a historian and many people are, n- are going to listen to this interview and read the reviews, but they may not read the 616 pages that you have worked so hard to write and I have worked so hard to read. Appreciate it. What is it that you want people to take away if you were just to give me a few sentences? What do you think is the kernel that people really don't understand? about this crisis and where we are today? I think the sheer interconnectedness, the essential role that America played in stabilizing that interconnectedness, and the fact that that interconnectedness has not gone away. Uh, And so that, in a sense, puts our current predicament uh, 
uh, in an even darker light, I think. Because what 08 showed was not that America was perpetually declining and increasingly irrelevant. It showed in ways that we didn't even understand how central the United States was. We have in no way broken our addiction to dollars as the foundation for the global financial system. And yet the political foundations for the United States to serve as a constructive, um, supportive, cooperative, just even plain predictable actor in the global system, do not appear to be in place anymore. And that, to me, is the payoff from this, is to understand exactly how difficult our current configuration is and what kind of questions that poses for all the other major actors in the global system. What do they do? Do they double down on a commitment to the interrelationship with the United States, which at this point seems questionable to say the least? Or if not, uh, do they appreciate the scale of transformation of unhitching what that would in fact entail. And if you look in the emerging markets, if you look in China itself, they're not moving away from an interconnection with the United States at the financial level. The dollar has become ever more pervasive as a means of blending and borrowing across the emerging market world. Adam Tooze, we started the interview and I said, what is your best money decision? You said investing in your child's education, which is we don't know whether or not that's going to pay off. But we're assuming yes. I feel good about it. That's you an feel important good? test. Does Columbia yeah. pay for your kid's tuition or something? Good God. All right. What's your worst financial decision? <laughs> oh, there's been so many. <laughs> I, I am a, I am Give me a, one. I'm a classic armchair analyst. You know, I've, I've held cash throughout QE. Oh, my God, because you were so freaked out. No, no, because I, because I just don't. I find it so hard to translate anything, you know, into like concrete personal action. I, I held a lot. I held cash. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? I hope you got some of it to work, at least in the last five Somebody years. Somebody took care so. of it. Somebody. Thank goodness. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to our guest, Adam Tooze. We'll have a link to the book. I know it's long, but boy, it's amazing. We drop episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. The easiest way to get those episodes is to subscribe anywhere you get those podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Radio.com, Stitcher, wherever. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. <laughs>